Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Iyad Tarazi, president, CEO, and co-founder of Federated Wireless. Iyad is a technology industry trailblazer with experience in successful commercialization of disruptive cloud-native SaaS technologies. Prior to Federated Wireless, he served as vice president of network development and led the network vision modernization project at Sprint Corp. In this interview, Iyad discusses CBRS, shared spectrum, and the massive potential for disruption and innovation they represent, as well as the interesting intersections between CBRS and edge computing. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. This episode of Over the Edge is brought to you by Seagate. Seagate's new Cortex Intelligent Object Storage software is 100% open source. It enables efficient capture and consolidation of massive, unstructured datasets for the lowest cost per petabyte. Learn more and join the community at Seagate.com. And now, please enjoy this interview between Iyad Tarazi, President, CEO, and Co-Founder of Federated Wireless, and your host, Matt Shafiro. Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of Edge infrastructure company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. Today, I'm here with Iyad Tarazzi, president, CEO, and co-founder of Federated Wireless. We're going to talk about Iyad's background as a technology executive, the history of Federated Wireless, and the future of 5G, Edge technology, and CBRS. Iyad, how are you doing this morning? Great, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. Well, you're very welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, You know, even though I, I feel I know you fairly well, at least in, in uh, uh, business circles, I don't know much about your background. Like, how did you even get into technology? <laughs> sure. Probably the story goes way, way back when I was a kid. I grew up out in the Middle East. My grandfather was one of the first engineers out in uh, in Mandate, Palestine. It was part of the British Empire at the time. And I used to sit down with him at the kitchen table when he will bring his drafting diagrams and pencils and slide roll. all sorts of things. Yeah, slide rolls. And he'd sit down and, and talk for hours about, you know, what a great thing is to do to be an engineer. And, and along the way, I said, okay, that's what I want to be. And that was back when I was eight years old, I decided I want to be an engineer. And, and I never looked back. It's the best decision I've ever made. I love it. Wow, that's great. And do, do you get to do much engineering? Now? <laughs> now, I try, I pretend. No, yeah. I mean, I do a little bit, obviously. Uh, running a technical company requires you to know the basics. Sure, absolutely. Back when I was about 16 or so, I left the Middle East, came here, and I did all my degrees at University of Maryland and SMU and took a bunch of different jobs with different companies. I, I basically alternated between startups and big companies. That was my strategy from day one. Because startups, you learn at a massive speed, but you don't have enough resources ever Big companies, you have all the resources in the world, but nobody will allow you to run at the speed you want. But you have all the resources to learn as much as possible. And so I kept alternating, and I'm still doing that. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, that sounds like a, a lot of fun. You know, this is a show about Edge, and so I normally ask people, you know, how did you even figure out about Edge and what are you doing? But you're really about CBRS, and there's an intersection of Edge, and we'll talk about that. But why don't you tell me how you even got involved in CBRS? Sure. And by the way, Edge, everything is Edge these days. So it doesn't matter what you do. You're part of the Edge 
or you will be part of the edge. <laughs> there we go. It's edge is just a cloud, and it's true. It's true. I mean, I I think in five years we're not going to say edge anymore. Anyway, it's just going to be the internet. Yeah, that's right. I do, I do absolutely believe that. But back to CBRS. When I was at Sprint, we worked really hard with SoftBank to figure out how to create real mass scale in the wireless business. The way the discussion got started is SoftBank was trying to get some handsets provisioned with a certain spectrum band they owned, and they didn't have enough spectrum. So it took a while to get Apple to come on board. So as part of the plan, they said, hey, if we team up with Sprint, we create a big ecosystem with a lot of 2.5 spectrum, we can get a better cost, better technology, better everything. And I was part of that project. And at the end of it, I sort of learned a very basic rule that Spectrum now is a scale business. The more Spectrum you have, and if you can organize it the right way, then you can create just you know a step function in cost and performance. And this is was way before people are even talking about 5G. A lot of these concepts are now built into 5G. And so after I left Sprint, I said, where can I fi- put, get my hands on some Spectrum that has all of that scale and cost advantages and performance advantages And maybe I can figure out a way to build an ecosystem without being tied to anybody specific. And excuse me, when when did you leave Sprint? Yeah, so 2014, I ran into a couple of scientists who have been working on very, very smart scientists who've been working on white papers and beginnings of proof of concept of how to create uh, this sort of shared spectrum. And the minute I looked at it, I was like, wow, that's it. This is a lot of spectrum that's configured in the right way. If somebody can build a real production systems around it and an ecosystem, you get all the advantages that a carrier typically today in terms of scale and performance, but you can give it to anybody that wants it. And uh, I stuck with it. And when we started with two engineers and now we're about 100, we have an operational system. We have over 50 customers direct and about another 70 indirect customers. And we're, we're just building. There's a lot to unpack there. What is CBRS and how should I think of that in terms of spectrum? Sure. Well, maybe you'll start what spectrum is. Spectrum is really the right to use the airwaves in a certain area, to put signal on airwaves in an area that's really reserved to you. And there are different models of how you do that. There's sort of unlicensed spectrum means go out there, throw out your Wi-Fi access point, use the airwaves and Hopefully, nobody else is there. And if you run into somebody else, you guys can fight it over um, and everybody gets the best they can, right? And you have license spectrum, which is what carriers use that says, hey, I need the FCC, the regulatory body, to make sure nobody else touches my spectrum in the place I'm in so I can get all of the best quality I can squeeze into it. So spectrum ultimately is the right to use the airwaves to transmit signals on it. That's how people talk for wireless and how they transmit data. CBRS is a piece of the airwaves in the U.S. It is a very large amount of spectrum. It is almost what a carrier typically used to have in the 4G world. And that spectrum today is used very, very, very little, but by very important people like the Navy and other DOD entities. And so the the challenge that was put in front of us, and we've solved it, is how do you actually create computations and sensors that will calculate out the very small amount of the usage and take the, all of the other usage and make it available to the public in a, in a simpler software way. So think of it as the equivalent of the Pentagon had a 10-apartment a building. They were only using one apartment. 
and they needed someone to write the software to be able to rent the other nine. And except that at Pentagon, in this case, every day will change apartments because they don't like to stay in the same apartment. And so we had to build software to be able to constantly detect where they are and rent or make available the rest of the spectrum in a way that was applicable to the industry. And that's what CBRS is. It's what sharing means here in this model. Sharing here means that we're able to make the spectrum that is not used, but would have been reserved and would have been unusable to the public in a, in a software way. That's why I like the Airbnb example, because a lot of uh, these sort of rooms that people had or houses that they weren't renting, they just weren't available commercially for people. And then once you got the software tools and the internet and the application on the handsets and the business models, you're able now to make a lot more vacation properties available in a, in a city that weren't available before because of the software and the tools. Very, very similar model to what we did in Spectrum here. So let me let me try to say back what I think I heard, but also elaborate on it a little bit. So when I have a, a phone, like the one I've got sitting right next to me on my desk, it has a radio in it, a receiver transmitter in it. And that receiver transmitter is capable of tuning to often many parts of Spectrum. It's just the RF spectrum, the same spectrum that visible light's on, that radio waves and TV waves are on. And in the past, um, the FCC has taken blocks of licensed spectrum blocks and they've auctioned it off. And companies like Verizon and AT&T and Sprint and so on bought those and they had exclusive access to those um, so that they could offer quality cellular service to their customers without colliding with Verizon's or AT&T's signal. And what you're saying is CBRS is a big piece of spectrum that was largely unused except for the Navy. And what I mean by largely unused is like you said, it's like a building where there's a very important tenant and he or she always wants to get to their office, but you got all these extra rooms and you can use them as long as the CEO isn't trying to get his to his or her office, right? And then all the people that you're putting in these other rooms just need to not bother each other. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like, yeah, and the, and the software that you wrote is maybe analogous to the software that like VMware and Amazon provide in this sense, in the sense that you have a server, it has a lot of resources. I'm running one one you know, one EC2 instance on it and it's not taking up the whole server. So, hey, wait, I've got all that empty space. I've got all these extra rooms. Why don't I stick a couple more servers on there, virtual servers? And you're just doing that with Spectrum. Is that essentially right? Yes, that's a good way to do it. And this is done through software, but you also mentioned sensors and and things like that. So this thing that you built is called, unfortunately, SAS, S-A-S, not S-A. Well, it actually is S-A-A-S. It's S-A-S as S-A-A-S. So what is is S-A-S? What is SAS in that sense? That is essentially right. Okay. It's spectrum access system, and that is a regulatory term. But uh, probably the best way industry-wise to describe it, it's we call it a spectrum controller, and it's a software-as-a-service product. It's a set of APIs, if anybody's familiar with software-as-a-service product, where if you exercise them, you get to our system, you ask for spectrum assignment, and we give it back to you in 100 milliseconds. So it is really sort of a, a part of the a cloud system that's accessible using a set of APIs and people can embed them into their applications. Any applications which typically are, say, a private network or a fixed wireless network or a broadband network, they need access to airwaves or spectrum and they can embed our product, software as a service type APIs in their code and they're able to get to us as for assignments when they need it. Yeah, so let's let's do a fun little exercise. Let's let's build a private wireless network that uses CBRS. Okay, so Let's imagine a scenario, I'm a mining company, 
I, I want to you know, connect all of my assets, all of my, my workers, my machines, my robotics, whatever's on, on my thing. There's no cellular provider that I can necessarily hook up to, no cell towers near me. So I think I want a private network. I mean, there's other reasons to have a private network, even in a, in a city, but out here, I want a private network. Like, where would I start? What, what's the first thing I need to do to get a private network? So um, I think it's a fantastic example, especially for a mining company, because it's not just the availability of a network, but you also would be concerned about people's safety. You'd be concerned about privacy of data. You'd be concerned about the ability to control that network, especially if you're beginning to roll out some automation. I mean, I could see applications like early warning systems to be able to make sure if I have danger, I'm able to detect it. Yeah, if I've got explosives or, yeah. Yeah, you're putting cameras to see are people safe, uh, you're basically maybe putting some uh, communication systems on your machinery, uh, you know, above ground, below ground to be able to, to get data out of it. How much did you haul? Where are you going? Where are you located? All of that data. And you want to be able to automate and manage that data in secure and controlled way. So what do you do? I think the first, typically the first thing people start with is the application themselves. So like, hey, I like these cameras or I like these terminals that I can put in the trucks or I like these sensors that will tell me what kind of components and what's the composition of the gas, you know, in certain chambers. And once you find the end application you do, then the next thing, typically you ask for, hey, what does it run on? A lot of these things run on Wi-Fi, but sir, from a mining application, that's probably quite difficult to be able to build a Wi-Fi network that reliable. Why, why is that? Well, because the range of Wi-Fi typically is, is not as predictable as you would with a wireless carrier. The advantage of having dedicated or reserved spectrum is that you're able to have a very predictable deterministic network. You know how much spectrum, you're not fighting for it. You don't know if anybody else will turn up a system next to you. You don't know if somebody has a handset with a hotspot that's turned on that will begin to use the same airwave. You have you know much more advanced algorithms in 4G and 5G that are built around security and power and reliability. Again, nothing against Wi-Fi, just that Typically, Wi-Fi is used for uh, opportunistic usage, opportunistic phone download, opportunistic access to the internet, where you know some variability in the performance isn't going to kill someone. And a lot of the these sort of very uh, reliable, secure networks that people are building for Industry 4.0 type automation, like in a mining operation, they want to know that that camera is always going to work. The speed of transmission is always going to be high that the sensor will have a five nines availability, that nobody's able going to be able to listen in or break in and try to figure out where their trucks are or what they're hauling and what the health records of their people are or what's happening underground or if they have an advanced warning system. Nobody wants that to be out in the public internet. So that creates another set of, the next set of requirements in terms of the reliability of the network, the capability, the capacity, and typically you'd need some dedicated airwaves or spectrum to be able to say, it's all mine, and I can actually close it off and manage it and put the right edge compute on it and the right you know, wireless systems on it and all of that. So once you figure out what the applications are, you basically go to the manufacturers that you're buying these cameras from and say, what sort of systems do you support? And right now, a very large number of them support uh, CBRS or shared spectrum either directly or through dongles that you can connect to. And the next step would be for you is to figure out, okay, now how do I build a network in order to be able to connect these devices back? You typically have to do two things. You need the set of servers or the uh, edge cloud type complex to be able to store all that data and run algorithms on it and 
be able to make decisions on it and display it and trend it and all of that. So, you know, a portion of your team would be concerned about, hey, how do I find that edge compute box and how do I connect it to fiber and make sure it's in my secure location and all of that. Another set of people would be thinking about how do I put the radios or the access points that will actually be strategically placed to be able to talk to all these cameras and sensors, collect over the airwaves from them what they need and be able to pipe it back into this edge compute. And so uh, typically people call that a wireless connectivity network for the latter part and an edge compute slash fiber for the first part I described. The good news about these connectivity networks for wireless is that in the old days, you used to be able to, used to have to be an expert at it. Hire wireless engineers that have things like 4G and 5G in their title and, you know, a lot of three-letter words, you know, PhD, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need that anymore. I think the model has evolved quite a bit right now into managed service. So there's a lot of people who will come, install, manage, deploy these sort of wireless networks, connectivity as a service solutions, similar to managed Wi-Fi. But there's, that's probably one of the fastest growing concepts right now or offerings in from carriers and from SI partners and from equipment makers is managed wireless services and managed wireless networks. And then you also still have to go find people that will help you figure out what edge compute to deploy. And luckily as well, there are a lot of people out there now, um, you know, on the innovating on the innovation side that are willing to come and deploy an edge compute complex right next to you, be able to support you and collect the data and connect you to the fiber and help you manage it. So that's sort of how this evolves. And then assuming you find the right partners for connectivity and edge compute, you would spend all your time now into refining your application, automating it, put the right algorithms on it, be able to predict what's going to happen, be able to make your operations more efficient, remove some of the excess resources that you didn't need, be able to figure out how to apply you know, data science to it, to understand, oh yeah, well, we deployed it. We really didn't know that this portion of the system wasn't working well until we collected all the data. And that's the vision of where everybody's going. People want to own their data. They want to own their operation. They want to be experts at running their operation in digital model and they want to find the right partners to help them build the applications, the networks, and the edge boxes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have a couple of questions about that. So let's say I hire this system integrator. The system integrator uh, works with a, a bunch of vendors that sell the radios and things. Let's say that I have, you know, four acres. And I'm just I'm oversimplifying this, right? Because I said it was a mine and stuff's underground. But let's say I'm just I'm just doing the surface area of four acres. And when I think of cellular communications, I think of like these giant towers. I know that there are small cells and things, but so what what am I actually installing on this four acre? Like how many radios? How big are they? Are they on poles? Are they on rooftops? Are they sitting in the ground? Like what 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 and I realize there's a lot of choices there, but what, what would be a typical example of how that would work? There are a lot of choices. Uh, I think maybe the typical deployment these days is that a warehouse on these four acres. <laughs> Most likely you have a big warehouse where, you know, the trucks come in, come out, and in a corner you have some office and office location. And then maybe also this is where you're basically monitoring and maybe doing assembly and all of that. So in the typical warehouse, you typically need maybe uh, anywhere between one and 10 different uh Think of it as ceiling type installations of little rectangular boxes that look like the Wi-Fi boxes in the ceiling. The systems vary between one that can have a lot of power and can cover all four acres 
but it can be very expensive and very hard to design and optimize because it needs to do a lot of things into really simple, cheap 10 boxes that are one-tenth the cost and you don't care where they are. And you can sort of, you know, I'd use the term loosely here, but sprinkle them across the location and they can work with each other, talk to each other and figure out how to split the load between them and tell support you. And, you know, different people have different sort of preferences. Yeah, and your system integrator is going to help you figure out what's optimal for your system and your budget. But a few boxes sprinkled, connected to your Ethernet network, wired into the ceilings, wired into the walls, and and then uh, connected back into whatever Ethernet network that gets into that warehouse. More or less, that's what it's going to look like. Okay, that, that makes sense. Now, when I talk to people in the mobile world, right, they talk about the mobile core and things like that. Like, w- what else do I n- need? So for, and the good news is a lot of these concepts are slowly sort of melting away, right? Uh, It used to be that the systems had to be quite structured. There is a core and there is a software on the radio and there is a mobility manager and an identity manager and all of that. These days, that's not what you need. You just need the radios, connect them, and you need some sort of controller for that system. And it has a bunch of software in it. That controller is a software product. And that's typically that fits inside the edge compute because the most efficient way to do it right now is to turn that software controller for your wireless system into a piece of code that fits into the same box where you collect your data and manage it and manipulate it. Because the world has sort of got inverted, you know, 10 years ago, managing the mobility and connectivity of a wireless was the most important thing to do when we were first launching iPhones, right? Now it's completely the opposite. Now it's actually the volume of data and videos and and all of the data you collect is 100 times the volume of whatever software you need just to connect to these wireless systems. So now that's how Edge Compute was born because we ended up with wireless networks because you ended up with the, hey, I don't really want all that connectivity boxes. I just need the box that has the data and all the logic. That is my Edge Compute. Can you shove whatever software controller for wireless you need on it so I don't have to buy a second box. And that really is sort of the simplest way I can describe the status of the technology right now. There's a bunch of access points. They connect over Ethernet. They make it back into this edge compute box. The edge compute box now is shoved with all sorts of software to manage control and be aware of what your wireless network is, what your cameras are doing, what your sensors are doing, and the real smarts and what do you do with the data? How do you store it? How do you replicate it? How do you analyze it? How do you put AI on it? How do you present it? That's the real work right now. Yeah, and and just to be clear, this this uh, controller box you're talking about is literally a server that you could stick in a rack somewhere. Yeah, or even software, or even software on a, on somebody else's server. Like for example, if you already have a a server which is an edge compute, that controller is nothing but another software layer on the same exact box. You don't even need a separate rack. Yeah, it depends depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, you've got a bunch of NVIDIA GPUs, and you've got you might have a, a full micromodular data center. If you've just got a rack, you might have an equipment closet and it might have two servers in it. I mean, the amazing part right now is that edge compute boxes now can do everything a hundred times better than any server you could buy. So it becomes, if you pick your edge compute properly, you never have to put another server rack next to it. Tell me more about that. Well, because edge compute is all about specializations of processors. You have processors that do CPU. You have smart NICs now that can do a lot of processing right at the connectivity area. You have GPUs that does a lot of processing for either AI or video. Wireless is just another application. If you have the horsepower to process high-speed and high-volume video, 
uh, within an edge computer. Oh, I see what you're saying. I was saying you, you don't need another server for the controller because just compared to everything else, it's a tiny piece of software. You got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. I thought you were saying you don't need servers for the edge compute. And I'm like, no, no, no. I, no deep neural network I know is going to run on a, a small server box. But okay, but I totally understand what you're saying. Okay. So now I need some connectivity back to the internet because I'm going to purchase, I, I need to allocate, I need to have access to Spectrum, right? Because I don't have any specific. So let's now tie that into what, what Federated does because I didn't buy any Spectrum. I didn't buy it at auction. I didn't go to a big carrier to get some. What do I do now? So our software does two things. Number one is that it's embedded in that wireless network we described. It talks to us directly, get Spectrum assignment directly from us, and we'll make it available in that location for you. And we'll track it, we'll monitor it, we'll make sure that so think of it as we're, we're giving you access to the airwaves in that location you're in, in that four acre, and we're putting your name on it. We're letting everybody know that you're the one using it. And if anybody else tries to use that same spectrum, we'll do something to protect you. And so we're basically giving you a virtual spectrum just for you. We give you the assignment. We'll let your system use it. The radios know what part of the spectrum it is. The handsets know what part of the spectrum it is. All of that's done through software to tell your cameras what part of the spectrum to use. They know it's your spectrum. They get to use it. We, meanwhile, don't give that spectrum to anybody else. We'll say that piece of the spectrum we gave away to the mining company. Don't touch it. In terms of connecting back to the internet from the edge box, you know, I think the two most popular things is that if you have fiber connectivity, obviously that's preferred into that location. And if you're doing a lot of volumes of data, you may do that anyway. But if you don't, the other way we use our spectrum is what's called wireless backhaul or wireless broadband. We can actually give you another set of spectrum and put a wireless link back from this box into the nearest location where the fiber is. And that's another very popular now. Wireless broadband is becoming very popular. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned that, that okay, I've got this uh, slice of spectrum that I've, I've uh, been allocated by you, and I had to pay you a little bit to do the, the, the figuring on that and to say that I've got dedicated, but I didn't have to pay for that spectrum, right? Like it's just mine free. I can use it. Yes, it's the most it's the most thrilling part of CBRS is that it truly, truly is free. It's really dem- democratizing wireless access. That is that is really fabulous. It's they picked a horrible name for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I guess under any name, free is good. It's CB, it's CB radios, right? It's CB radios. Yeah, CBRS is sort of is citizens broadband uh, radio service or something. Yeah, right. You don't even know. <laughs> All you really need to know out of it is that it's free spectrum, it's available to you, and we'll manage it for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so so now what happens if the Navy wants to use it? Oh, um, the spectrum, actually, we can move you around within a range. We have like 15 different slices of the spectrum right now. So if we give you one and the Navy is trying to get into the same slice, we will seamlessly without even you knowing, move you to another slice by telling all your equipment, your radios, your cameras, what to do to move them to another slice. And it'll happen instantaneously without anybody knowing or noticing. And uh, because it's all software defined and software managed. And so we move you to a layer that the Navy's not in. That's part of what managing means is we move you if we need to, in order to protect you from the Navy or protect you from your neighbor. Let's say your neighbor decided they want to build a factory too. And so we're protecting you from that too. Yeah, that's really great. And then, so are there other companies that provide Spectrum as a service services? And and I imagine there are. Yeah, so uh, I mean, we're about 52% market share right now. Okay. And we hope to uh, continue to do well. 
the, our top competitor is the small company called Google. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you've got more more market share than Google. I think you're the only person on the planet that can say that. We'll, we'll see how long <laughs> we continue to stand our, our ground. But, well, the reason I asked that, I wasn't trying to figure out who your competitors are. I was asking, you say, like, so you're both allocating the same spectrum. Is there some master database that the government runs? Like, how does that work? We actually, it's more of a cloud. Uh, it was also democratized, if you would. We have a way of to connect to each other and negotiate to make sure we all have access to all the spectrum. And when one of us wants to assign it, we tell the other that we're about to assign it. And, um, you know, so that update your database, we give it away. That's that's amazing. Now, one of the things that you and I are both familiar with in bringing a new industry to life is you can't do it alone. You need an ecosystem and you need competitors, frankly, to grow it, right? So so you you and, and your company, Federated, have put a lot of energy into building an ecosystem. There's the Seabrass Alliance and other things. Can you tell me what initiatives you've created or participated in and what those are about? Sure. I mean, and, and that's sort of where the relationship with Google can get maybe a little bit of an asterisk there. Yes, we compete, but at the same time, we collaborate in creating a very open ecosystem. And it's not just us, but a few others as well. Um, we have over 200 companies that joined. So when we first started, we made a very conscious decision that this has to be an open system because success in Spectrum is really about the, making sure that there are cameras that use it and there's phones that use it. It's less about the Spectrum itself, but about the, the end application that are configured for it. And the only way you can build an ecosystem is to create users and you bring as many partners as possible. So about 50% of what I spent doing in the last five, six years is recruiting partners in the ecosystem more than even building a product. You know, carriers are part of it. Cable companies are part of it. They just went to the auction and spent over a billion dollars. Uh, equipment makers, almost all wireless equipment makers are in it. Over 40 equipment makers build now commercial systems. All the handset makers are part of it. iPhones, Androids, Samsungs, LGs, Motorola's, and a few others. There are tablets on it. There are laptops about to come in now from some of the biggest manufacturers. Wireline companies are in it. They went to the auctions as well to try to get some spectrum. And I'll explain the auction in a minute. People also, like, you know, small wireless companies, you know, called wireless ISPs that are scattered across the U.S. There's hundreds, if not thousands of them, are also part of it. Enterprises are part of it. Utilities, educational facilities, uh, some universities, hospitals, um, industrials, oil and gas. A lot of people are part of it. And uh, ultimately, it's the only way to do it. We build it in a way that you can come participate. We're not going to charge you, but you have to come in and be willing to embed it in your systems, add it to your phones, add it to your chipsets, uh, make sure that you're committed to build the ecosystem. And all we really do right now is facilitate the management and enable the system. We pass more than 90% plus the value of what's happening and what the Spectrum offers over to our customers. We're more, we're more focused on enabling the ecosystem, enabling our customers than anything else. We're an enablement platform at the end of the day. Millions of small transactions that allow other people to build businesses inexpensively on top of it. I think, I think it makes a lot of sense. And this, this organization you're talking about, were you referring to the CBRS Alliance? Yes, it's called the CBRS Alliance, which is anybody can join and, and a lot of really good people join. 
Yeah, yeah, I've been sent to some of their events. It's really good. So you mentioned auctions, and I'm a little confused because I thought this Spectrum was free. Why would I have to buy it if I can just use it for free? Okay, this is quite complex, so I'll try to explain it. Half of the Spectrum is free all the time at a minimum, right? So you don't actually have to do anything. The other half was set up in a way that you can actually get a priority ahead of other people to use the other half. So it's still shared, it's still open, but if you come in and the Spectrum is all used up, and if you had paid for the priority license, which are the priorities placement, we will make room for you ahead of others because you paid money to do that. So people ended up paying $4.6 billion for the right to be able to get a priority ahead of others for half of this band. That's a lot of money just for priority. It tells you how valuable it is. That's a reflection of the value of Spectrum in general. It's a reflection of the application value that they're going to build on it. It's also the value of the ecosystem and all the things people want to build on it. That's really interesting. Now, another question I have that I'm curious about is, you know, you mentioned at the top of the, the interview that um, you started Federated Wireless after meeting a couple of these PhDs at the Pentagon. And so I'm thinking about, you know, pretty some hardcore RF engineering involved in this. And I'm connecting that to your statement that Google's your biggest competitor. And I'm wondering if part of the way that you and Google are competing against each other, and obviously the other folks that are in this business, is in the magic of how you allocate the spectrum, or do you all use the same algorithms? Some algorithms are standard, and some algorithms are uh, individual. I would say that we have about 20 PhDs on staff, just to give you an idea. Wow. This is really, it's an algorithm business in the end of the day. That's actually why Google is good at it in terms of being part of it is because they're good algorithms. It's also, you also, so the, the science that went into it are four pieces. First is you had to create the algorithms that, uh, think of it as a heat map where you're always watching where the signal is being used by whom in order to know what part of the, the map is open. It's like watching a traffic network to see which part of the roads. We get a lot of data from the access points themselves that are turned on, but we also get a lot of other data, databases that we feel in about terrain, about the kind of structure of buildings. We get some data from the FCC. We get a lot of data thrown into it. Um, so that's the first piece is how do you build these algorithms to know that your system is available? The other piece of it that was really a lot of the innovation we drove was to build a set of sensors. Think of these as sort of listening devices specialized listening devices, highly secure with some machine learning that sits on the coasts and look at what the Navy is doing. So we know at any given time what they're doing and where in order to make sure we we never really put them in a, in a tough spot. And that requires a lot of optimization as well, because the key for it is to be able to see them coming, how they're switching signal, be able to react in real time to their switch, at the same time be able to move people around them and do all that without anybody knowing that you did it. So all the software around it, all the algorithms. So that's, uh, it took us at least two years to deploy that network. We launched it a year and a half ago, and it's taken us at least a year to optimize it. That's really a source of pride for us, for sure. And then the third piece is that this is a massive system in terms of the amount of data and the response time you need. So a lot of cloud scaling. And we're proud of our relationship with AWS, where we've been working with them on cloud scaling, auto scaling, distributed algorithms, how do you actually split up the data? How do you manage it and partition it and put it back in so you can offer people, you know, sub-second type response consistently at five nines availability, no matter what they throw at you. A lot of innovation went into that. And then 
the last piece of sort of what goes into it is to be able to support your customers um, at the front end, everything from customer management to tools to help them plan, to help them analyze, to help them predictive analytics, you know, all the things they need to do to partition their spectrum, resell it, all of that, all the feature engine on top of that. So these are, that's a lot of innovation. That's in the end of the day, like I said, we're a software company that sits on top of an open ecosystem with a bunch of partners built around a very, very innovative spectrum model that's enabled by a really innovative government, the FCC and the DOD and NTIA and the White House, what they've done here over the last you know, multiple years now, 10 years plus, in terms of creating this innovation model has been just uh, really uh, first in the world and hopefully more of that to come. We are working now on an extension of it. The White House just opened up another, or the FCC has just opened up another 100 megahertz, which think of it as another big chunk adjacent to it that uh, we're beginning to define that looks like an extension. We'll keep adding to it to continue to give people more access to spectrum and uh, enable them so they can build uh, as many of these private wireless and edge compute solutions as they want. Now, if we had had this idea and this technology back when we first started selling spectrum to the carriers, what would the world be like if it was all shared? At a minimum, we can double the amount of spectrum. So at a minimum, and we may be able to do 10x, depending on the location and the congestion. Wow. More importantly, the things we wanted to accomplish, here it is. Number one, wide participation. You know, you had to have billions to be able to get into the business of wireless because you had to build really big amounts of spectrum nationwide. Now you can come in for free, right? Literally, you have one building, one room, and we can get you into the business and you can own your own spectrum. And we can give you a free ecosystem and iPhones will work on your spectrum and all of that. These are these things were completely unheard of as the white participation. That's really important because there's a lot of businesses now that need to transform their business to be wireless as well. They can't just basically outsource their technology. They need to be technology companies. I think the second piece of it is the speed by which we're able to make the spectrum available. Typically, when you're doing it on an exclusive basis, it takes years and years to completely clear it, move all the existing users, have all the Navy reprogram all their ships, which is like 20 years, right? And $20 billion. Then it's available on an exclusive basis. Here we're saying, I don't care. It's like Airbnb. Don't sell the house. I'll rent the room for you tomorrow, right? And that's basically what we're doing. We make the spectrum available immediately. That's great for economics. That's great for innovation. And then the third piece of it is that just the all the new ownership models that didn't exist, right? You know, it used to be, you used to be organized around a wireless service as sort of what enterprises go by. And then they basically build applications on top of it. What was probably most exciting for us as we saw people coming to CBRS is that there's now a retail spectrum model. There are now enterprises that value getting access to spectrum, and then they get to choose what technology to build around it. They get to choose the radio partners. They get to choose the solutions. They get to optimize it. When we go from few people building technology on Spectrum to thousands and thousands, if not millions, of deployments, the amount of innovation we're going to get into the software technology ecosystem is just going to go through the roof because that diversity of users mean diversity of ecosystem, mean diversity of suppliers, mean innovation is just going to take off. That's the democratization in the best way possible. The U.S. will become the most innovative by far in creating solutions and applications and technology for wireless because they'll be able to get a thousand enterprises or a thousand companies all innovating at the same time. 
If you look at the enterprise space, anything that's really open to the enterprise space, security, routing, storage, edge, the amount of innovation there is just breathtaking and very, very fast because it's a really big market with a lot of people. We're about to do the same for wireless. It's amazing. When did it first become available in such a turnkey fashion? Because I remember as recently as a year ago, um, like if you wanted to do, we were trying to do something in Chicago, we actually had to go get some special. So that doesn't exist anymore. So tell, tell me, when, when has it first been like it's turnkey, as you just said, where literally you put the radios up, you hook it up, you turn it on. And... In, in January, it became completely official. January. You didn't have to talk to anyone. We have now total in the system, close to 50,000 nodes that are deployed right now and growing, right? And this is all the industry, not just us. I think within a year from now, you'll be talking hundreds of thousands of nodes and four or five years from now, you'll be talking millions and millions of nodes. There's still a lot of enablement and simplicity being added to it. It's not 100% there, obviously. There's a lot of innovation to come. All of the things we talked about earlier, making the nodes, wireless nodes simpler, making the controllers simpler, making the integration with edge compute simpler, the integration of the fiber simpler, making the applications simpler. All of that with really the goal ultimately is that these things are plug and play networks that you can focus all your energy on the application and on growing your business, controlling your business, managing, automating, mining your data, becoming as good of a technology enterprise as you are as a mining company or as a warehousing company or a trucking company. That's really the goal. Yeah. And, you know, you you mentioned, you know, the example of the edge computing and the mining example. And I think that really the reason CBRS and edge computing go hand in hand is because the reason you put up a private network in these environments isn't so that humans can pick up the phone. I mean, sometimes it's so we can talk to each other, but it's more so that these devices that are on 24-7 can generate data. They don't have to be have a fixed connection. They can, they can be in motion because one of the things that cellular technology does way better than Wi-Fi is handoff. So I get all these advantages of a really reliable, discrete, I think is the word you use, discrete SLA network that I can count on for my critical data. And the value of that data presumably uh, decays over time. And so some portion of it will benefit from processing in near real time in the premise of edge computing is that there are workloads that require that, uh, either because you can't afford or don't want to ship all the data back or you want to keep the privacy. You know, there's a lot of reasons for it. But so tell me where you're seeing the most interesting intersections between CBS and edge computing. Sure. I mean, I think the most basic concept is that the warehouse or the retail store now processes as much data, has access as much automation opportunities as it used to be a city worth of a network 10 years ago. Right. All the things you can do in a warehouse, all the, you know, barcoding, the robotics that moves boxes around, the security cameras to automate, the environmental sensors, um, all the things that you can do there are all available today. All of these sort of edge IoT capabilities are there. And, but they also generate tremendous amount of data and they need to be operated on. You need algorithms to run them. You need automation. You need to be able to trend them. You need to be able to see the videos. You need to be able to put you know, machine learning on them, all the things you need to do on them, right? And so um, basically what CBRS does is creates a connectivity bubble right in that location that connects in a secure, predictable way these endpoints that are generating and acting with the box that has all the algorithms and data. And you're able to keep it all in the warehouse so it's secure, controlled, and it's yours and available and low latency and high quality and 
It's your network. So you, you're, uh, you mentioned your relationship with cloud providers, and can you help us understand like, what that's for? Like why you have a relationship with cloud providers and what it provides to the end customer? Sure. I mean, I, I think what you know, our heritage has always been enable everybody. We want everybody to be able to use it. It's an open ecosystem. We want to create as much access to this as possible. So the, the two endpoints I described are actually are the top two investment areas for cloud companies. They've invested billions in the endpoints, the IoT, the IoT management capabilities, identity management, all of that. But they also invested quite a bit in creating the edge uh, software and the edge solutions and the connection between the edge and the cloud. And uh, we fit neatly in the middle in terms of offering them a private connectivity and a manageable connectivity that fits right between the endpoints and the edge. And we do it in a way that is owned by the enterprise because that allows our partners to be able to wrap the whole thing in into a complete private network, including the edge devices, including the edge compute, includes the connectivity itself into one automation solution that can be at the 100% at the control of the enterprise. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that is I think that's definitely a line of thinking. There's a the whole set of IT organizations that are like, this subset of everything we do, it's got to stay on site. It's got to be in our, our world. But um, there's also this reality that increasingly workloads are moving to the cloud. And, you know, Amazon makes a pretty convincing argument that they're way better at security than private IT organizations because they're protecting millions of people and they've got a staff that's gigantic and they can hire, you know, 100 PhDs that do nothing but security. And so do you see that need to control on site? Because, I mean, honestly, having computers on site is a pain in the ass, right? You got to have an IT team. I mean, that's the cloud is great, right? So do you see a world where I can provision all this in the cloud and just hook the radios up with a fiber connection back to some edge cloud server and that's running all these workloads and even the controller? Is that is that something you see coming? I think that the decision of what to put in the cloud, what to put in the edge is another function for your edge compute box. That's another way to control it. Yes, you can see variations where everything is controlled in the cloud. You can see it in places, all everything is on the edge and most likely you're going to see division of labor. And so that's another function function you're going to see in the edge compute. You may have a really stripped down an edge compute to collect the data, but you don't have all of the backup capability and the storage and management, throw that into the cloud. You might see it into the edge being just simply a router, just to route everything out of the box, out of the building. So these are all variations that you will see. And you'll see some places where it's 100% contained and everything is processed there and never read the cloud. I think these are decisions that get made as part of the edge compute strategies that people are deploying. Yeah, super interesting. So, Yad, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and enthusiasm for this with us. Uh, I have one last question, and that is, uh, if people want to find you online, want to find you personally or federated, where's the place they should go? Uh, LinkedIn is the best place to go. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Thanks. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Seagate is making mass capacity object storage open at last with Cortex Intelligent Object Storage Software. Cortex is 100% open source object storage that enables efficient capture and consolidation of massive unstructured data sets for the lowest cost per petabyte. 
Designed, built, and maintained by Seagate and a community of data scientists and enterprise storage experts, Cortex brings exabyte scalability to your private cloud. Learn more and join the community at seagate.com.